you are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honored to be joined by Rabbi Ron Wittenstein, Rabbi of Kolbarama uh, here in Santa Fe. Rabbi Ron, welcome. Thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. It's great having you here. You're you're actually the first rabbi who I've interviewed on this show. So let's start with what led you to become a rabbi. It's a combination of, of a couple of things. The primary one, I believe, is I perceive a rabbi as one who educates, involved in education, involved in teaching. And I really love my teaching and, and the education aspect of it. In addition, growing up, I had the, a role model, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, who was the rabbi of Beth Jacob of, of Atlanta. He was very much a, a role model for me as to a, a, a person, a rabbi, and just a, a person whom I greatly respected and, and looked up to. What is it that for you differentiates a rabbi from a teacher, for example, in a school? or well, it, There's a different kind of teaching. So how is it for you? It's. I would like to think that a rabbi have, has particularly an involvement with adult education, and I enjoy the interaction on what I believe is an intellectually honest level. I enjoy that very, very much. It's something I, I really very much enjoy. And of course, um, you know, of course, it's a religious education. Um, are there specific things for you that you feel a rabbi? Um, should be teaching necessarily? What are the principal core things for you? The core, uh, for me, the core things are core Jewish books, primarily the scriptures and the Talmud and, and how the Talmud and scriptures relate to our lives. So how do they? I mean, if we have, um, because obviously uh, our Jewish tradition has developed over, uh, the texts have grown enormously. How do we relate ancient texts to today? Excellent question. It's actually one that I try very much to – I have a class on that topic. Very good. Yeah, and where we take what I believe are a a current event, current situation, whether it is from a Jewish legal perspective or if it's more of a – not a legal but rather a moral question Mm -hmm. and I try to present sources on that where I see, where where it seems to me that this idea will be expressed, this idea can be seen, can be learned. Sometimes you'll have multiple interpretations and then one has to decide and that's also the the job of a halachic decisor mm-hmm. to make the decision, is it this way or is it that way? And that's, and that's very much the, the connection between, the, between those texts and today. 
And do you find that there are archetypes, ancient archetypes, which we can use today in, in, in today's world? I mean, obviously, for example, um, let's take the laws of Shabbat as an obvious example. You know, uh, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have light switches. So, so how does that work for you? Excellent question. We're dealing with situ- uh, right now the class is dealing on one of those situations exactly. On the, on the Sabbath, how do we deal with a certain modern technological advance that beforehand they didn't have. We also dealt with uh, on regarding erasing, for example, whether computer electronic is considered erasing. That's just a, what, what the class was about. And so I tried to source where I believe this can be learned, where it can be learned from, right. and to base my base my perspective and my understanding on what I see in the in the Talmud, what I see in the in the de- different texts. Regarding the moral questions, a lot of times there's people that we see that they figures that we see in the scriptures, and when when we have a figure that that is in the scriptures, we have to ask ourselves, what is this person trying to teach us? Why, why did God put this story in here? What do we need to learn from it? And that's how, in a moral level, I believe we apply. We we see what can be applied to today's day and age which comes from a moral perspective and what people did at the time. The the challenge uh, from here, I'm sure, um, is that if you are if you were a member of clergy who were just reading scripture in English, it, you might be able to say, oh, well, this person did this exactly, and therefore we should do that exactly. But of course, when we're reading in Hebrew, uh, and then we're bringing an interpretation, is it possible to ever say this is what a person was here to teach us? Because could we not read a verb in a particular different way, or, or even the, the 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 grammatical structure of of a, of a verse? Could we not say, well, maybe it could be that way, or maybe it could be that way, and, and learn two totally different things? Yes, yes, one can. We have numerous numerous situations that I can give you examples of. Which I won't right now. Right, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that we see this idea being expressed that we have different interpretations on different situations that potentially can tell us not necessarily conflicting lessons, but that we can see from them different lessons depending on that person's approach and perspective. And this is important, isn't it? Because when, uh, as you come from the perspective of the Orthodox community and the, the, the assumptions that people make, Orthodox say this is the way, but, but that's not what you're saying at all, is it? That, that we can interpret in a number of different ways. Would that, is that what you're saying? Yes and no. Yes and no. Go on. <laughs> the, the, the yes about it is that when we're learning not the legal parts, but mm-hmm. when we're learning the moral questions that come up, they are, there's more room there for interpretation. Whereas when we're learning the legal parts, it's much clearer because the law in a certain sense is being stated much clearer. This is the law. This is not the law. This is okay. This is, should, should not be done. This is okay to do. This should be done, etc. Depending on the circumstance, so that's much, I believe, much more clearly delineated as to actions, if you will, right. what should or should not or should not be done. Whereas moral questions are have been always, and I believe continue to be much more gray. 
don't we? Isn't isn't there that tradition though? Even in halacha, in law, of of you know, one rabbi says this, another rabbi says this, or or even in different communities like the Ashkenazi or the Sephardi community. So um, or minhag hamakom, the the local customs for people. So um, so how, is there flexibility in law, even if it is uh, within a certain framework? Depends what. Depends what. There is, but it's not in everything, meaning not everything can be bent. You had mentioned, for example, Minhag, the custom of a place. So regarding the customs, the custom in a sense, if the custom in Santa Fe is one thing and the custom elsewhere is totally different, it's a question of custom. That's not our custom. Maimonides in his preface to – his, what I believe it's his magnum opus, the, the 14 books that he wrote. And he presents over there where the cutoff point regarding, regarding halakha is and where minhag starts to be much more expressed how we can have different minhagim, different customs in different places. He dis- does discuss that at length. But for the most part, if something can be clearly proven from the Talmud one way or the other, then we have – the Talmud for for an Orthodox Jew is a binding book. And right. if it can be clearly proven this way or that way, then that would that would be binding. And, and talking of uh, the, the particular Orthodox perspective, you know, for many people who aren't from the Jewish community, when they think of an Orthodox rabbi, they'll probably think of the stereotype – typical image of an ultra-Orthodox rabbi necessarily, uh, whereas you are a, a modern Orthodox rabbi. I fooled you, right? <laughs> I don't think so. So, so for you, what are, what are the differences between modern Orthodoxy and ultra-Orthodoxy? How would you explain that to somebody who wasn't of the Jewish community? So I would, I would explain that basically when we have – the world has been developing. There have been advances in, in technology. There have been a, a multi – a myriad of advances in, in many different ways, medical and, and so on. So when we have this conflict or we have a, a balance that we have to find between the, the tradition as it exists and what exists currently in the modern world and we have to find what the balance is. And I believe that where one finds the balance of modernity – as opposed to tradition, and no, this is exactly how it was. And there may be, in, there may be for that group of people, the tradition in that area takes on a level of sacredness by itself. Mm. Where's the divider? I, I, you know, when you and I we, we talk often, and and I, I feel for me there is a different balance just between tradition and modernity. Um, when it comes to ethics, for example, you know, contemporary ethics are so different to ancient ethics. Um, what do we do with that? Well, what do you do with that? Um, you know, we, we can follow a law and say, but this is the law as, as, as is written, and so that's it. But, for example, when we have um, you know, differing understandings of, of the role of people in society, um, how do you find the how do you find that ethical balance i think that that's that's not necessarily written down in the text or if it is are you able to say 
understand that was the perspective of 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago. But now we understand the human mind to be different or society to be different. How much can you bring in of modernity in, in, as, as an orthodox rabbi? That's an excellent question. The head of Yeshiva University was a very well-known rabbi who was called Rav, Rav Yosha Ber Soloveitchik. Mm -hmm. And many people refer to him as the Rav. He was the rabbi. So, for, so he actually discusses this balance in one of his books in a couple of different places. But he discusses this, focuses on it in one of his books. And he different, distinguishes between when there are what he calls, I believe, immutable values, immutable things, and where are, there are certain things that do change. So when there's a statement that is said implying a role or about a, a, a balance between people, mm -hmm. and if that statement is an immutable one, then in a sense, those are the facts of life. But if it's not an immutable one, then something that we would say, okay, that changes according to the time. Quick example for, about this. I don't believe that we would, for the most part, do bloodletting as a way of healing today. Okay. Well, now, 600 years ago, I believe that was a very common, very common method of healing. So what changed? Because our medical knowledge tells us, well, bloodletting really doesn't do very much. Rather, if you have this type of an illness, this is what's wrong, and then, then you have to deal with it in a medicinal manner or in a holistic manner that we see actually works. But we have in, in medical area, I believe, much more clearly defined, whereas I believe 300 years ago and more, it really wasn't clearly defined. So this sounds like it's almost data-driven in the sense of uh, – and again, correct me if I'm wrong um, – how can we determine what is immutable – and it sounds like you're saying we can learn that some things change because we actually see medicinally that doesn't work. That's a really bad idea. Whereas perhaps uh, uh, perspectives on gender or race or, or anything, uh, they don't, they're not data driven. So maybe there's a, is, is there a different perspective? There? So it could be that it is like, like this example would be, I believe, very much data driven. Whereas there are other things that I are stated, this is the law. It's not a data-driven thing. It's a God-given concept, and that's not something that, as an Orthodox Jew, I can change. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to ask more about Scripture and authority because it, it's, it's really fascinating to hear um, a differing perspective. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom, and my guest this evening, Rabbi Ron from Kol Barama uh, here in Santa Fe, and we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Rabbi Ron from Kolba Ramah here in Santa Fe. And we were talking about authority and you were talking about God-given laws. And so that leads me to scripture. What is your perspective on scripture? Where does it come from? Yes. So one has to distinguish between the five books of Moses, the Mosaic law, as opposed to the rest of the the books of the scripture, the Old Testament, that the book, five books of Moses, are, according to Orthodox tradi tradition, uh, are God-given. Every single word, every single letter, exactly how it was like this. It's an interest. just as an aside for this, there's an interesting thing that we see. We have been dispersed throughout the diaspora for the last 2,000 years mm -hmm. from after the destruction of the Second Temple. 
and we didn't the world used to be a much larger place throughout all of the different jewish communities mm. whether it was far far east afghanistan or further whether it was far west france yemen all of those communities the sefer torah the torah scroll is exactly the same mm -hmm. the yemenite community has two small differences but that but they're it's an aleph instead of a hey. Just one letter instead yeah, of another. Yeah, right. But besides that, there's basically exactly the same, all letters, mm. exa exactly. And, and a Torah scroll is written by a scribe and it has to be written, handwritten, exactly like that, copied from a pre-existing Torah scroll. Right. So how is it uh, – for your understanding, uh, when you say it was divinely given – was it divinely given to Moses on Sinai, even the part at the end that said uh, Moses died and was buried there? You know, you know, even, even that? Yes. The Talmud actually asks your question. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's fascinating yes. to hear. Yes. So the Talmud asks the question and the Talmud presents two, two answers out as to how to reconcile this issue that Moses – here Moses is dead already but he's, he's writing these things about his dying and how, how we would understand that. And with tears in his eyes. Yes. Yes, indeed. And, and so this is – so this all leads to – if you believe that Torah uh, is the, – the first five books uh, of the Bible are specifically given by God to us verbatim, that instructs us, I would say, to, to understand why we're here. Um, that would be a, a guide. So, so in your understanding with that theology, why are we here? The question, to paraphrase the question, what was the person, purpose of creation? Okay. Yes. So uh, the, my understanding of the idea of the purpose of creation is that God's essence is good. Now, we don't understand – we use the term good because we're humans and we have to use terms that we understand. But his essence is perfection and good, which is as Maimonides discusses at length in God, The Guide for the Perplexed. Mm -hmm. It's something which we – it's godliness. It's not something that we necessarily understand. Right. Now, with that in mind, so part of this idea of being good is that a person or an entity who is like this desires to – bestow from his goodness mm -hmm. upon others. Now, that's the, the crux of the, of the thing. That, the idea is that it's for, for this entity, God, mm -hmm. to be able to bestow upon us, which are the creation that he created for this purpose, good. The way, the method for accessing that good is by emulating God. And that's the primary reason we go – if you go through the, the, the Torah, there are numerous places that it says w that walk in his paths. Mm -hmm. We derive many things from this idea of following God and this idea of following God, which is also somewhat delineated by the Torah because one can, in the name of God, do rationalize many things right. if, it's, he, if it's just just left up to a human intellect. Right. But with that in mind and with the guide that God gives us, we do these acts of emulating God and these acts of emulating God bring us a perfection that is similar we, as if we tap into God. So let me ask a, a, perhaps a challenging question going back to the data and, and, and so on. Um, 
why if if we look at the scientific understanding of the universe of 16 billion years old and that we human beings have existed for nothing essentially of that time why would god create the universe just for us isn't it extremely androcentric extremely focusing on us as opposed to the rest of creation that has existed for millions and millions of years did they exist you know the dinosaurs everything else did they exist in order just to lay the table for us yes and so what does that mean for uh, for for where the rest of creation goes are we the 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 end point of creation, the high point of creation, as you understand it? The Talmud presents on this matter a very interesting contradiction. On one hand, the Talmud says that man was created last, mm-hmm. the, save the best for last, if you will. Okay. On the other hand, the Talmud says man was created last because that way if a man starts getting too full of himself, then a person can walk over to him and say, who do you think you are? Right. Even the lowliest amoeba preceded, preceded you. you. Right. So don't don't get your head too bloated. <laughs> <laughs> I have read some interesting feminist commentaries that say man thought he was last, but actually woman was last. So she's the. <laughs> so let, let me ask um, about theodicy, particularly because with such a, a particular relationship and understanding of God. Um, if we are the the culmination of, of creation, if God created the world for us, why create a world with so much pain? It, uh, this is the the theodicy question. Why why create? You know, you can if God can do anything, why not create a world with at least a little less pain? It's an excellent question. <laughs> it's discussed in numerous places. Talmud later. Earlier, there are those who say that that was Job's question. Right. But ultimately, that, that has an answer but doesn't have an so, answer. Yeah, Job is a very – it's a very difficult book to read. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the – my understanding of the matter is that you have to really look at it. There's two points here which are crucial for understanding this idea. One point which is that man has free will and it's imperative for man to have free will because if man did not have the choice to – to cease to do whatever he wanted, then that means that he's really a robot. Mm -hmm. If he's really a robot, he's not really doing anything. So in order for man to actually achieve godliness, to emulate God, he has to do it on his own will and volition. We don't always make the right choices. (laughs) So so many times I believe that pain that comes out is not necessarily – it, it, it's we have we have a situation that a person has made a wrong choice, and that was his God-given free will to do that, and that causes pain for many people. But that's his choice. But those are those are moral evils, and I think we can all understand moral evil as being consequences of choice. But it's the natural evils that I, I think are more challenging. The if I, I, I'm thinking as you're talking. Um, of the sort of parental model where I could uh, create I could ask a child walk from this place down the end of that corridor or I could put them in a tightrope on a tightrope over a canyon and I can say walk the same distance Um, and uh, you'd say 
well, I'm giving them a choice, but not really. It would be a much more, a much nicer thing to say, I will protect you from that pain, from that pain of falling. I can still give you choice, but, but why in a world with so many natural evils of tsunamis and earthquakes and diseases that, that are beyond our ability or our moral choice? Why would a, a, a good God create such things that are so horrific? As, as opposed to the, the moral case, mm-hmm. why, why create something? Why create a world where there's a tightrope over a canyon as opposed to just walking down a corridor? Within God's world, who is good, but similar to the example you brought earlier of a parent, at time there's a balance. The parent can't, a parent cannot always, I don't think, give the child the sweets that they desire right. and to, to constantly they, – they don't like this so therefore we're, we're not doing that. That's, that's also in a parental child relationship that's not I, – I don't think it's not – it's the right balance. A parent has to also have the ability at times to try to teach the child, to rebuke the child, to maybe – to do something to make that child aware that maybe what they were doing is wrong. And to, uh, to add a little bit to more, more to this because there's a, there's a – that didn't fully answer your question. Right, because that <laughs> suggests that natural evils have moral origins. Yes, that, that's the angle I was, I was going on, that God sends a natural evil in order for us to look at it and say, okay, there's something that he wants from us. Now, the question uh, that then beckons is, so why did all these people pass away? Well, right. So that I, I don't know the answer to that. And, sure. I, <laughs> and, and, I, and essentially, that's Job, isn't it? it, it yes. And let me – there's two points I would like to, to mention on this idea. One is the fact that the verse in Deuteronomy 32 states – and this is said by, by mourners when, they, when they're escorting their beloved ones. It says – the rock whose actions are perfect. Mm-hmm. That, so that means that the actions are perfect even though this person who has passed away now potentially affected different people and has an effect on different people. God knows that for all of those people, this is exactly right exactly at this time and it's something like a puzzle. This is the piece that is, fits right there. This fits perfectly into the big picture of that. To add one more thing to this, Maimonides has a wonderful idea that he presents in the laws of repentance. Mm -hmm. So Maimonides says like this. He he presents a dilemma that the Talmud says, on one hand, on the Jewish New Year, on Rosh Hashanah, it says that the righteous are inscribed immediately for life. Mm -hmm. The evil are inscribed immediately for death. And those who are neither here nor there, Mm -hmm. they're – Hanging in balance right. until Yom Kippur, until the Day of Atonement. Okay, so Rambam says we see righteous people that pass away during the year. Right. We see evil people that live very long lives and are very successful. How do we reconcile that? So Rambam's answer, in a nutshell, is that we that the real gauge of what an action a person does, whether it's good, whether it's bad, what its weight, what its what its weight in spiritual is. The only, the only one who can really judge that is God. And the, the term that he uses is he who knows all of the 
secrets, all, all of the yodea ta'alumot, the one who knows all hidden matters. This is this has been fascinating. This has been absolutely wonderful to to learn from you and to to hear a, a, a differing Jewish perspective. It's been a real honor having you on our show. Thank you. It's been a very uh, it's been an honor being here. Thank you so much. So thank you, Rabbi Ron from Kolbarama in Santa Fe. Um, really, um, I. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. Likewise. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>